there, your polygamy listeners. It's your devoted sister in the gospel, Lindsay Hanson Park. Forgive me, I'm short of a flaming sword right now, and the avenging angels and I recently had a falling out. So my pitch is going to be a little bit terrestrial. Still, I'd like to compel you that if you're enjoying this podcast, that you'll consider donating to your polygamy.com. Become a monthly subscriber, make your calling and election sure, and support this project, or you can join me on Patreon to get access to videos and exclusives. I hope you enjoy what you're hearing. I hope you feel a burning in your bosom when you listen and that you know that this podcast is true with every fiber of your being. I'm truly grateful for you and your continued support. Thanks. Well, I have sinned so gravely, Brother Brigham, Brother Young. I have sinned so gravely, Brother Young. That only you can save me, Brother Brigham, Brother Young. That only you can save me, Brother Young. Well, I have revealed the temple secrets, Brother Brigham, Brother Young. The temple garments, oaths and secrets, Brother Young. I have apostatized and doubted, brother Brigham, brother Young, and borne my testimony falsely, brother Young. Um, moving on, um, one of the most fascinating to me is William Clayton's diary. And, um, you know, this is criticized because it is currently restricted to most people with the church. However, as John stated, it is going to be released, um, hopefully sooner than later. So there's a lot of polygamy um, talk in... Uh, this journal, but there's one uh, section in particular that I that I think is important that's going to hit quite a bit of what we've sort of talked about, and that's May 1st, 1843. And in it, it's written again in code, but it says MJ to LW. And so that's Mary Joseph to Lucy Walker. Um, and so, so the whole thing says married Joseph to Lucy Walker, PM at President Joseph's. Uh, but then there's other writing in there and, and he talks about the Kinderhook plates. So in this same section, this May 1st, 1843, he wrote, I have seen six plates, six brass plates, which were found in Adams County. President Jay has translated a portion and says they contain the history of the person with whom they were found. And he was a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and that he received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. And so this is actually incredibly important, um, this discussion of the Kinderhook plates, and shows that um, William Clayton wrote this at the time. And so how that is, is as you look at it, he starts his journal writing the Mary J to Lucy Walker. Um, and then there's a break in the middle of the page because he does, he traces one of the Kinderhook plates onto his journal page. And then he wrote the rest of it after that. So we have writing, this um, tracing of the Kinderhook plate, and then finishing up for the day. And so um, historian Brent Metcalf recently pointed this out to me, this whole thing that um, historian Stan Kimball, he confirmed, um, he was one who was able to see uh, this journal, that the tracing matched the size of the sole extant Kinderhook plate. And so... There's also, on the May, May 3rd, 1843, Brigham Young, he also traced one of the plates into his journal, and his journal matches William Clayton's journal. And why this is important is that the plates arrived in Nauvoo on the 29th of April, 1843, and they were gone by most likely May 7th of 1843, mid-May for sure. That's 
you know, when Joseph Smith gave the plates back and they left Nauvoo. And so Clayton must have recorded the journal entry between the arrival and those departure dates of April 29th and May 7th. And so this is not something that was forged later or monkeyed with. Um, it had to have been written during that time. And so, again, very important contemporary source. And I, ho- I hope I explained that okay. I hope that made sense. Yeah, you did. All right. So moving on is... And, and um, John, really quick, can we link to some of this Um Will we be able to link to some of these documents people can view and see? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll send those to you so you can put them up. Um, so Willard Richards' diary um, on June 12, 1843, he also wrote, um, and I'm going with Gary Bergera's um, transcription of this, but it says, married Rhoda Richards to Joseph Smith. So again, that's in June of 43. And by the way, anybody who can read Willard Richards deserves an award. He is probably the worst handwriting in all of Mormon history. But his journals are all available to look at um, at the uh, Church History Library. Um, The next one that I love to talk about because I've written on it before is Joseph Smith's 1844 indictment for adultery and fornication. And so I talked about this one a little bit at the beginning. Not a lot of people know about this. I think more people are, are getting to know about it, but it's very important. So William and Wilson Law went and testified before the grand jury that Joseph Smith was committing adultery and fornication. And so I'm going to read a little bit of two of the counts. So one of the counts says that Joseph Smith, on the 12th day of October in the year of our Lord, 1843, and on diverse other days and times between that time and the day of finding this indictment, at and within the said county of Hancock and state of Illinois, unlawfully then and did live together in an open state of adultery with one Maria Lawrence. And then one of the other counts says, um, same kind of thing, dates, all that, with certain women to the jurors unknown, there of the said county of Hancock in the state of Illinois, unlawfully did there and then live together in an open state of adultery and fornication. And so before I jump into this document, I kind of want to follow up what John said on the laws. Um, A lot of historians have simply just written off the laws because they have also turned William Law into basically a cartoon villain that would fit in any Disney movie. I mean, he is Cruella DeVille. He is, is any of them. And it's just not the case. William Law was a man who gave his life to the church. He stood by Joseph Smith through all the John C. Bennett stuff. He defended him all the time. And then he found out that this man that he loved and supported was marrying polygamously. And so I think we need to look at William Law with a lot of charity because um, that would be incredibly devastating to find that out about this person that you've loved and supported. And and if you remember the laws, they, they didn't immediately want to tear down the church. I don't think they wanted to tear the church down with the Nauvoo Expositor. Time and time again, they went to Joseph Smith saying, just stop this practice. And they were ultimately excommunicated and sort of backed into a corner to do this. So number one, I think we need some charity for the laws. But what's really interesting is is you can't just write this document off as the laws making stuff up. And here's, here's why. Back then, grand juries consisted of 16 people. 12 people needed to vote to indict. And so we know that at least 12 of these 16 individuals on this grand jury indicted. And back then, the standard of proof was good and sufficient evidence. So 12 people found good and sufficient evidence to indict Joseph Smith. 
and I'm pretty bad at math, but what's important is six of those individuals on that grand jury were Mormon or very friendly to Mormons in, in the case of one. And so those six individuals were stake president William Marks, Bishop Edward Hunter, Willard Griffith, Isaac Clark, James Rawling, and then Mormon friend and justice of the peace, Daniel H. Wells. So two of these individuals at least had to be convinced that this happened to Mormons. So this wasn't just an anti-Mormon grand jury with anti-Mormon witnesses. Mormons were convinced of this. And, you know, sadly, voting records, we don't have those. Um, We also don't have the um, testimony that was given. That stuff isn't kept in grand juries today or back then. Uh, Well, they are today. They're just not public. But, but back then, that kind of stuff was was destroyed. But we know that at least 12 of them, including two members of the church, voted um, to indict. And um, we kind of touched on this earlier. You guys both jumped into the William Mark statement. This truly gives context to the William Mark statement where Joseph Smith comes to him three weeks, two weeks before his death. That, that's this time period. And says, um, we're a ruined people. I asked how so. He said, this doctrine of polygamy or spiritual wife system that has been taught and practiced among us will prove our destruction and overthrow. I have been deceived. And quite honestly, just a side note, I would love to come on and talk about William Marks. Um, There's actually eight different versions of of this and they change throughout time and it's fascinating. But but nonetheless... um, Well, I'm going to take you up on that for sure. Uh, So when you volunteer to come on... (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to hit you up for that. And really just to interrupt you really quick, I just want to say again to the listeners in case your mind has wandered off or if you're just tuning in for some reason, John Dinger is playing by the rules of these are all contemporary. We're we're saying contemporary documents pre-1848, correct? Correct. Okay. Just to reiterate where we're at. Keep going. Lindsay, am I talking in a manner that's going to cause people to wander off? Ouch. No, that is not that's not what I meant. <laughs> I just, I think sometimes when you listen to history and you start hearing documents, the dates sort of fly out the window. And um, I think people might be hearing this and they might say, well, but what about this? What about this? Again, I just want everyone to remember that this is all pre-1848. I appreciate that. So I love talking about this indictment. Um, But moving on, um, I'm just going to hit a couple more. Um, But there's the Blake Kimball letters uh, and the one that specifically, again, many of her letters talk about polygamy, but June 29th, 1843, um, she is writing a letter to Heber. And uh, again, this is at the LDS Church Archives. You can look at it. But she's referencing Joseph Noble's um, plural marriage to Sarah B. Alley. And Sarah got pregnant. And so in this letter, she says, I might tell you, for it was just what you had prophesied would come to pass. Now, if you know what you have said about Sarah, then you have got the secret. For it is even so, and she is tickled about it. And they all appear in better spirits than they did before. How they will carry it out is more than I know. I hope they have got more faith than I have. And so again, here's where we need to be careful. We can go look and see dates of birth and where people are when this young man, George, was born and all of that. We have to look in context. No, this document doesn't say plural wife of Joseph Noble, who was authorized by Joseph Smith, is now pregnant. But we have to look in the context that this is talking about a child born of um, polygamy in 1843. 
the latest one I'm using, we've been saying 1848, is Zina Huntington's journal. She writes in her journal on uh, December 11th, 1848. She's talking about her sister, uh, Presenda, Presendia. And uh, at the end of this, she says, seven years ago today since Presendia was sealed to Joseph Smith. This again is in the church archives. And what really hits me on this one is there would be no reason to go and forge a private journal. You know, you, you can dispel these, these public affidavits and say women are put up for them, but there'd be no reason whatsoever to write something like this in a private journal if it wasn't true. Wilford Woodruff's journal from January 21st of 1844. He is at a meeting concerning the things of God. Parley P. Pratt received his second anointing. Joseph said concerning Parley P. Pratt that he had no wife sealed to him for eternity. And, and there's some talk on that. And then there's some stuff that Wilford Woodruff wrote that is struck out. And the struck out portion is important. He writes, Brother Joseph said now, what will we do with Elder P.P. P. Pratt? He has no wife sealed to him for eternity. He has one living wife, but she had a former husband and did not wish to be sealed to Parley for eternity. Now, is it not right for Parley to have another wife? And so we have this again, writing in Wilford Woodruff's journal, a private journal, if you will, this talk of polygamy. promise I'm almost done. We mentioned the Lot Family Bible. You can see that at the Church History Library. It states, September the 20th, 1843, by President Hiram Smith with seal of President Joseph Smith. September 20th, C.P. Lott and Perma Leah Lott gave their daughter, Melissa, to wife. So there, there's no reason to, to forge a family Bible. But what is also important is in Joseph Smith's journal on that same date, he says, wrote out to the farm. And the person that managed Joseph Smith's farm for him was Cornelius P. Lott. And so he is there on that date at, uh, at the farm. Uh, there is this series of letters that have been published um, with the Scott family. Sarah Scott wrote to her mother and father from the vicinity of Nauvoo in June, June 16th of 1844. She says, but because of the things that are and have been taught in the Church of Latter-day Saints for two years past, which now assume a portentous aspect, I say because of these things we are in trouble. The elders will likely tell you a different tale from what I shall, as they are positively instructed to deny these things abroad. We will not give you a correct statement of the doctrines that are taught and practiced in the church according to our own knowledge. Joseph has a revelation last summer purporting to be from God, allowing the saints the privilege of having ten living wives at one time. And so again, that's a letter from... Uh, right before Joseph Smith's death in 1844. Um, the last one I'll talk about is <clears throat> from that trial that Hiram sued, that sexual slander trial. Uh, there was testimony from a J.S. Scott, and he is talking about having a conversation or listening to this conversation of uh, the defendant, O.F. Boswick. And here's what he says. Defendant said he was at the prophets last week. The prophet asked him if he thought he had any spiritual wives. Defendant said, no, I did not know he had any, but I know by God that your brother Hiram has. And there's more talk. The defendant refused to tell the names of any woman, but went on to tell of a young woman he knew at the East who joined the church and came on here and was taken last summer or winter and Hiram was sent to lay hands on her. And so not only is this a contemporary document at that time, but then again, checking the context, this does fit Hiram's plural wife, Catherine Phillips. 
Um, she was the only plural wife that have possibly fit the description. She was from the East. She was a young woman, only 24. And then it also, historically, we can tell that she moved from Illinois after being suspected of living in polygamy. She moved down to, to St. Louis. She later wrote, quote, in consequences of the strong feeling manifest at the time against plural marriage and those suspected of having entered into it, I, with my mother, moved to St. Louis near the close of the year where I was living when the prophet Joseph and my husband were martyred. And so again, this isn't a uh, full list. I mean, there's a bunch more. Martha Brotherton, Brigham Young's journal, the minutes of the trial of Benjamin Winchester, um, John Taylor's wife, Lenora's private notebook, uh, Rigdon non-denials, Orson Pratt, Sarah Pratt, all sorts of stuff. But um, these are some of the ones that, that jumped out to me, but certainly not a comprehensive list. Yeah, I really appreciate you. I really appreciate you going into that. And we'll link to some of those. And like you said, it's not comprehensive, but that's a great place to start. And I don't see those documents really tackled in a lot of the arguments, do you? No. And if I do, like I said, you you take one on its own and uh, you don't put it in its context. It's it's that, that Mormon love of proof texting. Well, that's perfect. And I am going to take you up on the Marx episode. So stay tuned for that. Okay, um, anyone have any commentary before we move into Buchanan stuff? Really quick, I think just, just one thing I'll say is I really appreciate John going through all of the contemporary sources and saying, hey, I'm going to play by their rules, I'm going to play by their rules. But, I mean, that's, that's pretty bogus rules. It's important to understand that because in addition to just this, all these contemporary sources, we have everything that came after. And it fits, you know, really well together. I mean, if, if you're putting together a puzzle, everything snaps into place, the later statements. Um, and, and I imagine, Lindsay, that you'll get into this later, but there's a big part of this is then later on not believing women, like we're really at this important point in our culture where we're, we're possibly choosing to believe women. A, a big part of denying that Joseph Smith was a polygamist is not believing women um, that, that came later. And so I guess what I'm leading up to is if you're, you know, if you're going to talk about this rationally and look at the possibilities involved, what's, what's more likely, if we're going to get out Occam's razor, what's more likely that, that these later statements were all, I mean, it, it just strains credulity to say that these later statements happened in the context of nothing coming before that every single thing John just talked about was forged or was misinterpreted or has to be framed in this particular way, you know, because, because you're not just contending with that you're contending then with affidavits later on, you're contending with people saying, yeah, that, that is what, when Joseph Smith said, you know, this, that's exactly what he meant. You have to deny those people. So there's there's another element to this where you're not just maybe reinterpreting an 1843 document. You're saying that people later on lied about that document. And so there's there's a lot to that. And so I think we have to keep that in mind as well. Really appreciate that. And that's, I mean, by the time we get to my portion, I don't think there's going to be anything else to say. But that's great. Um, okay, so Brian, could, could, go ahead. Right there too. Yeah, go ahead. So that's really important what John says, and, and I appreciate that. And sadly, it's, it's nothing new. Since coming to Idaho, I've really got into Idaho polygamy and the testo. And the other day I was transcribing a sentencing um, of a bishop in 1885. And the judge in that case, he, he just got so frustrated because 
what they tried at trial was to say this woman, his plural wife, was, was a liar, that she was actually a prostitute and not a wife. And I love what this judge says. He says, and it was Judge Hayes, and he says, and this you and your people justify, are you not ashamed of any religion that will cause you to trample any woman down as you sought to trample down this woman who trusted you? And um, that's what these arguments are, just simply trampling down women and their voices. Perfectly said. Okay. Uh, Brian Buchanan, what have you got? Walk us through... We. I sort of hinted towards this at the beginning of the podcast, but tell us about the prices. Who are the prices? Why are they important? Why should we care? Very, very important. Like you said, their their research comes out. It's kind of big for a time, disappears for a while, and now is hot again. So we, we've got to hit them because they're key. But the fun part about history is nothing comes ex nihilo. It doesn't come out of nowhere. There's background. There's context. So what we're going to do real quick is do a 25-cent version of RLDS perspectives on polygamy because it will absolutely inform the prices who then inform Denver Snuffer, Rock Waterman, so many other current, current as in right now, even more so than the prices, discussing Joseph Smith and polygamy. So there's a fantastic article we'll link to. Uh, Richard Howard who you could kind of think of as the RLDS equivalent to Leonard Arrington, wrote this article for the John Whitmer Historical Journal on the development of the RLDS perspective on Joseph Smith and polygamy. He concluded that, quote, during the early years of the reorganization, opposition to plural marriage was one of the church's central concerns, second only to affirming the principle of lineal descent in church presidency. So that, that shows you how key it was to their identity. I found this interesting. So as some podcasts discussed, there was quite the succession crisis, and there's different options, there's splinterings, people go all over the place. But then over time, you get this coalescing of a group in the Midwest, and it eventually becomes the RLDS Church, and that happens, uh, the formal organization, 1860. But I found this interesting. So the very first Joseph Smith III sermon after the organization he says, quote, there is but one principle taught by the leaders of any faction of people that I hold in utter abhorrence. That is a principle taught by Brigham Young and those believing in him. I've been told that my father taught such doctrines. I have never believed it and never can believe it. If such things were done, then I believe they never were done by divine authority. I believe my father was a good man and a good man never could have promulgated such doctrines. So that's interesting because it shows you this really isn't an evidence discussion. This is a belief discussion. And you get out of this, this syllogism that they'll use over and over through the coming decades. Joseph Smith equals good man. Polygamy equals bad. Therefore, Joseph Smith could not have been involved in polygamy. Not just that he wasn't, he could not have been involved in it. So, um, that same year, first issue of their periodical, the True Latter-day Saints Herald, they reprint an 1852 interview by a man named Isaac Sheen. So he had been baptized in uh, during Nauvoo, and now 1860 is editing the RLDS periodical. And this, as far as I can tell, this, this births the idea that Joseph Smith fought polygamy. So he said, quote, the Salt Lake Apostles also excused themselves by saying that Joseph Smith taught the spiritual wife doctrine. Joseph Smith 
repented of his connection with the doctrine and said that it was of the devil. He caused the revelation on that subject to be burned. And what year so is this, Buchanan? This, so the, the interview was first 1852, okay. then reprinted for RLDS consumption in 1860. Well, and that's so, interesting. 1852 is an interesting time period because that's when, you know, polygamy becomes public, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the public announcement is likely what causes Sheen to give this interview. So um, back to our William Marks. Let's, let's hit that again. This comes from the 1853 version. That's interesting that you point out that there's that many versions, Dinger. I knew of a couple, but not that many. That's, that's fun. So what happens is, is Marx says in this version, quote, Joseph, however, became convinced before his death that he had done wrong for about three weeks before his death. I met him one morning in the street and he said to me, brother Marx, I have something to communicate to you. We retired to a by place and sat down together. When he said, we are a ruined people. I asked how so. He said, this doctrine of polygamy or spiritual life system that has been taught and practiced among us will prove our destruction and overthrow. I have been deceived, said he, in reference to its practice. It is wrong. It is a curse to mankind, and we shall have to leave the United States soon unless it can be put down and its practice stopped in the church. Now, said he, Brother Marks, you have not received this doctrine, and how glad I am. I want you to go into the high council, and I will have charges preferred against all who practice this doctrine, and I want you to try them by the laws of the church and cut them off if they will not repent and cease the practice of this doctrine. And, said he, I will go into the stand and preach against it with all my might, and in this way we may rid the church of this damnable heresy. Okay, Dinger, this is good. I want your opinion. Is this Marx just hypothesizing what he wishes happened? I mean, don't you see him, his desires, he's thought about it so much, they come together in this story that, as you pointed out, he repeats and embellishes and, and so on? No, not at all. I, I believe the entire thing. And that's why I said, I think we put it in context. Oh. Joseph Smith, all his polygamist allies at the time had left Nauvoo. And so um, I, I don't see it as, I see it actually happening. I don't see it as Joseph Smith meant it. I see it as Joseph Smith buying time and trying to gather allies and uh, get people back on his side um, because okay. he feels he feels what's coming. Okay, interesting. So he, you think it does happen, but not necessarily the way that that Marx will portray it later on. Maybe. Well, it, it, no, Marx is pretty consistent um, okay. the whole time. I mean, I have I, I have an interview where he discusses this just a couple of years before his death, where he's point blank asked, you know, did Joseph? Well, he just asked about polygamy, and he says, you know, based paraphrasing here, but uh, you know, John C. Bennett and Joseph were the first to go into it, and so he he he's always stuck by these claims um, his whole life, which makes him so interesting and so hard for these groups to grapple with. I don't know if you're going to get to that later, but but when it's convenient, uh, when he is in the first presidency of the RLDS church, it would be really convenient for him to deny this and say Joseph wasn't. And in a meeting of the Quorum of the Twelve with the first presidency there, um, he won't back down and he says, no, Joseph was a, was a polygamist. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. Thanks for that. But, but that breaks my rules. It's it's past 1848. So. Oh, we're going to hit all sorts of late yeah. stuff. So. I, I actually appreciate you breaking the rule just that once. That, I didn't know that about the RLDS, so thank you. Just once won't hurt, Dinger. 
Um, so next point I thought was interesting. There's an 1867 meeting of the RLDS Quorum of the Twelve, and in the minutes they have this great discussion. So, quote, the following resolution was put and tabled, resolved that we do not believe that the revelation alleged to have come through Joseph Smith, the martyr, authorizing polygamy or spiritual wifery came from God. Neither do we believe that Joseph Smith was in any wise the author or excuser of these doctrines. So then it lists four people who defend it and then three that oppose it, quote, on the grounds that its passage would be more injurious than good because of the almost universal opinion among the saints that Joseph was in some way connected with it. Uh, one of them moves that it be tabled and, quote, hence the revelation was lost. President Smith, Joseph Smith III, then told us that the passage of the resolution would do more injury than good. So it's still rough when you have these people that had been in Nauvoo and that had been on the ground, um, not just in leadership, but in the membership, because you can tell people they didn't see what they saw, but that doesn't go very far. So the, we've still got lots of boots on the ground that are still around that make it problematic. Shortly thereafter, David Hiram starts bringing up uh, some confusion because he's wondering about it. He's wrestling with it. And uh, as you've talked about in the episode with the, the cousins, you get these missionaries, our LDS missionaries that come to Utah. We get Joseph F. Smith creating affidavits. So Joseph Smith III is in a tough spot. But then by the late 1870s, he really starts to harden his position on this issue. Now, what's changed there? So by uh, that time, William Marks has died. Um, Isaac Sheen that we mentioned earlier has died. David Hiram is now unfortunately committed to a mental asylum. So a lot of these key voices that are making this more complex than he would like are no longer there to oppose how he wants to frame this discussion. And very interesting one, though. You still have one more. 1879, Apostle Zenas Gurley Jr., great name. Uh, he's the son of Nauvoo-era LDS member and an apostle in the RLDS church. Uh, he and Joseph Smith III have a back and forth in letters about this. So Gurley says, quote, I have felt somewhat sore and chagrined at the attempts made through the Herald, the RLDS periodical, to establish the innocence of your father touching polygamy as though the work of God depended in any sense upon his innocence or guilt. And I may say here that many others in the church have expressed similar feelings to me, but have and do feel too delicate to speak with you upon the matter because it's your father. I, however, have more confidence in your good sense and judgment to allow such feelings preventing me. Will you open the columns of the Herald to the other side of the story? And have I not a right as a member of the body to demand it? I have frequently been asked to write upon the subject, and I do think if one side of the story is continued, that the other must have a hearing. So he wants to set up a podcast with Joseph Smith III here in the uh, periodical, as it were. Joseph Smith III responds, What I have done or tried to do, and this I have done conscientiously, was to deny that my father was the human author of the polygamy practiced by the Utah Saints and the revelations claimed as its sanctioning and authorization. Now, this is great. He then suggests, I think it would be better to have Orson Pratt and Joseph S. Smith debate this. I don't want to have RLDS folks on debating this. This is, this is way too abhorrent to me to think about RLDS folks duking it out over this. Then he continues, 
I do not know what evidence you may be in possession of, different or more direct than I have seen or heard. I know, however, that you know personally nothing about it, and therefore that your belief is from secondary classes of evidence. These it is your privilege to receive as conclusive to you. I have the privilege to reject and disbelieve them, and this without lessening my respect and esteem for you. As to what you state about the arbitrament of the futural, as to his guilt, and that then I will be obliged to confess that he was so guilty, suppose we leave it right there. I am not positive nor sure that he was innocent, and as I have no means of deciding nor accepting evidence that seems clear and conclusive to you and others, I am content to take my chances of defending the gospel upon the hypothesis that he was not the human author of that polygamic revelation. So several interesting things there. First, he says, nope, nope, the evidence doesn't go either way, so we're just going to ignore the evidence. I believe that my father was innocent. But then notice he says, I will defend the gospel. So this by now has absolutely become an article of faith. So it's no longer in the, the, the realm of history. This is the matter of faith and testimony. Now, this is an article of faith for us as RLDS that, you know, he absolutely could not have been involved in polygamy. And that's that mindset is so helpful because that informs how RLDS will will treat this for the next 75 years or so. Okay, getting back to getting closer to the prices here. Um, another fantastic article about the prices specifically by Bill Russell. Uh, he dates the quotes seeds of the descent of Richard Price and other fundamentalists to the late 50s and early 60s. So a few key things that happened there. 1958, W. Wallace Smith, uh, son of Joseph Smith, succeeds two of his brothers slash half-brothers, and he is already been seen as liberal and ecumenical. So he's, we're a little wary of him. Right that time, they hire four new uh, professors at Graceland College, the RLDS equivalent of BYU. Again, these are liberal and ecumenical hires that raise some red flags with members. Then in 65, Robert Flanders, an RLDS historian, writes this fantastic history of Nauvoo where he very candidly states, uh, yes, absolutely, Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. And uh, it's interesting because it's sort of Leonard Arrington and New Mormon history and the history division, all of this, but just happening a few years earlier for RLDS church. And Flanders, after the, the book is published, is essentially marginalized and pretty much never heard from again at least in RLDS circles. Then, late 1960s, two huge red flags. Uh, 1969, this series of position papers is written, and this deals with this new Sunday school curriculum that they're going to use. And you have a member of the First Presidency, and three apostles are, on, are in this department. Then, at that same time, you have a series of theological seminars that the First Presidency and the, the leaders attend. And these are all very, very liberal, at least as they are perceived by the membership. So uh, this fundamentalist element starts to develop. And in their worldview, their unique character is being eroded. And so they've got to do something to reclaim this identity that they've had for so long. So they start a newspaper. It goes for a few years. But then the editor leaves for an evangelical Protestant church. And so now we've got this void for spokesmen, who is going to champion the fundamentalist viewpoint here? And cue Richard Price, finally. 
So Richard Price is born in Boise. So another uh, boy from up north. Got to go. We got to give some Idaho love here. Um, his mother is RLDS, but she remarries an LDS man. It, uh, he eventually will convert to RL, the RLDS church. Then they divorce, and she remarries yet another LDS man. So all throughout his formative years, Richard is constantly being confronted with LDS perspectives. So he's, he's battling this, not just in the larger church, but at home. And then in 48, 1948, he marries Pamela Kirksey, another RLDS member from Arkansas. Two years later, they then gathered independence, and their career uh, kind of takes off. Now, from this article, listen to Bill's description of Richard Price. Even as a young man in the 1940s and 50s, Price was troubled by what he regarded as a lack of thorough commitment to traditional restoration principles and an overemphasis on careerism by the church's appointee ministers. Does this sound familiar? These are, these are concerns that we'll see crop up with different folks that uh, come after the prices. So after uh, Richard Price reads a, a bootleg copy of these position papers that they develop, he's had enough. He writes a pamphlet, and then it later becomes his first book called Saints at the Crossroads, and he eventually will give away or mail out thousands of these books. In fact, there's a great story of they show up at his house right before the World Conference, the RLDS equivalent of General Conference, and he gives them out to all sorts of people there at the conference. Imagine, you know, say, Rock Waterman attends General Conference, and he's handing out uh, what to expect when you've been excommunicated to attendees. I don't know that that would go over terribly well. Price then claims that the RLDS Church is trying to get into the National and World Council of Churches by discarding unique beliefs. And this was really interesting to me because I'd heard this from LDS people, that that was one of the reasons that uh, they changed the name to Community of Christ was that so they could get into this some vague body of churches and they had to give up the Book of Mormon to do this. And I thought it was really interesting. This apparently comes from Richard Price. And uh, listen to what he says about this. He says, quote, do you know that the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the inspired version of the Bible are being discarded and that the church is being changed into a Protestant denomination? Do you know that the new curriculum actually teaches vulgar, profane, and communistic material to our children? Have you noticed that Joseph Smith is no longer really upheld as a true prophet? So you can see already he's really angry at where things are going, and he's considering, you know, what's the options here? He also speculates, quote, God may have to raise up another people to do his work, which smelled a little one mighty and strongy to me. So then in, in 1975, they create a publishing house called Camorra Books, and their first publication takes on women's ordination. So this is kind of the other prong of RLES fundamentalism. They eventually, uh, RLES leaders threaten to sue him, and they have all sorts of back and forth, and, and it's, they have to make it clear that Richard Price does not speak for the RLDS church. So then, now let's get Richard to polygamy specifically. I mentioned that Richard Howard article, so that was uh, published in the John Whitmer Journal in 1983. Price, uh, this, is, this is bad news. He's got one of his own church members, one of his colleagues, that is giving up and, and admitting that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. So he writes a rebuttal, and you have to know that if you read Richard Howard article, to our LDS members at the time, it would have seemed explosive, revolutionary, whatever. But reading it now, he's 
way too wishy-washy on Joseph Smith's involvement. It could have been much, much stronger. But so Richard takes out a full-page ad in the Independence Examiner. The best part, Pamela, his wife, says that the fee for their ad was paid by employees at our LDS Church's headquarters. So he's got plenty of people that are of like mind that are, are cheering him on. So then the next year, 1984, they publish a book called The Polygamy Conspiracies. So they're, they're not hiding anything. They, they fully believe that there is a, uh, a full-blown conspiracy. Um, and uh, they argue that you know, it's, it's getting into this, this council of churches, and they're discarding all of these unique uh, pieces of our identity that make us who we are. Um, and so this was interesting, too. The, the year after, um, in that, that same year, 1984, the revelation that allows for women to be ordained is uh, accepted, which is wildly explosive and causes a huge rift. Um, then the next year, they silence Richard's priesthood. And then his response, Price and his associates refused to recognize these silencings, believing that the fundamentalists were the true reorganized church and that the liberal leaders were in apostasy. So just like LDS fundamentalists, silencing their priesthood does nothing to them. They, they feel that they have the true identity. They're the ones that, that are right and that the church around them is, is an apostasy. So this is when, following the, the, the revelation that allows women to be ordained, that's when you start getting formal organizations. They try to write it out for a while as kind of covert members of the RLDS church, but that doesn't work. And so they start creating this, this separate organization called Restoration Branches Movement. And so then a few years later, the prices now begin their own periodical that's kind of a, a voice for this movement called Vision. And they start writing a series of articles called Joseph Smith's uh, Fought Polygamy. So that's from the first issue of this periodical. That is a key component of their identity. And back to what, what Hatch said earlier, I want to point out before we start talking some specifics of prices, these are not dumb people. Absolutely not. They have done an incredible amount of research. Um, Dinger mentioned the, the 1842 Chauncey Higby case. They have this great story about um, traveling to the actual court looking through the records, um, transcribing them. Then they come back six years later because we have better photocopying techniques. But at that point, somebody had taken the records home and part of it is lost and, and this, this whole thing. So yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not lazy. They're not stupid. They're not dumb. They just share um, a worldview that will inform how they're going to deal with this, you know, all this mountain of evidence pro and con that's around them. Um, Wait, so really quick, Hatch, do you want to say anything about that? That just fits into what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, well, I think he hit it, really. It's just that I, I think if we back way up and just talk about human nature, we, we didn't evolve to be logical or rational. We're, we're emotional beings, all of us. Um, and I don't think any of us can really truly appreciate how easily we can talk ourselves into things and how, how easily we can convince ourselves of the correctness of our own views. And then it becomes a situation where everything around us reinforces that, that correctness. Um, 
And so anything, anything someone like the price is fine is, is just going, you get to a point where everything confirms the correctness of your beliefs. And that's, I think that's what's going on with them. So, you know, if they find something, some of these documents we've talked about that, that seems so straightforward that, well, gall, you know, this, this means, you know, Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. They, they would see it the opposite way. And it would just be so obvious to them that, well, this means Joseph Smith didn't. Um, and again, it's that conspiratorial thinking where on the one hand, you know, there's, there's this great evidence if only everybody would open their eyes. And then on the other hand, the evidence, you know, on the other side is, well, that that's just what they want you to believe, you know? And so it's, it's that kind of, that kind of mentality. Cool. Yeah. That's, uh perspective and and how you choose to look at something as we pointed out is is as important if not more important than the actual piece of evidence itself in so many of these cases so i wanted to look at a couple of their specific arguments because they're coming back again and we're we're seeing these arguments recirculating so uh the first big topic that they chose to hit was that polygamy started with the cochranites up in maine and then what happens is missionaries go up to Maine, hear about it, and then bring it back with them, as well as some converts from up there. And that's how polygamy starts. It's not Joseph Smith. It's the Cochranites that are responsible. So this sect is really interesting. They, they're they kind of this nebulous, seeker-ish group. Uh, they're called the Society of Free Brethren and Sisters, and they have some ecstatic religious practices. It sounds very much like what John Whitmer describes in the early days of Kirtland, there's this jumping off stumps and preaching to trees and, you know, the kind of this uh, very enthusiastic and to modern eyes, odd sounding practices. But then the key point is they have this free love slash complex marriage system. There's lots of assigned marriages and the leader, Jacob Cochran, apparently has lots of them assigned to him. Not too surprisingly. So by 1832, you've got missionaries going up there. You've got Orson Hyde and Samuel Smith uh, specifically that spend quite a bit of time there. And they record being uh, disgusted by these ideas of, of free love and, and complex marriage, whatever we call it, that's going on up there. And what's interesting is the prices, after discussing this, they do pay lip service to other groups, uh, the Oneida group, you know, all these other different movements that also have complex ideas about marriage, but then they conclude saying, quote, Cochranism was the polygamous primary mainspring into the church. And they, they also point out there's a, an 1835 conference up there with uh, most of the apostles. But then what's so interesting, you know, they, they, they give you a history of what happens there, but then they conclude, quote, those evil dogmas must have made a deep impression on the apostles for of the 12 who were in the apostolic quorum at the time of Joseph's death, at least 11 became polygamous, exclamation point. And so this, this is something you see a lot in their writing is they'll take some observation of some sort and then we make a huge leap. I mean, right here, there was a conference at which the 12, many of the 12 were there, and then later they became polygamous. So therefore, they had to have gotten it up here, which you read and you're like, where did that come from? How did we get from, from A to B there? So then prices then moved to Brigham Young. He, he is really the main force, and he was not coincidentally, up in with the Cochranites as well. And uh, a point they bring up several times is that Joseph Smith had zero children by plural wives, but Brigham Young had 56. They don't bother to point out that five of those only 
happened before Joseph Smith died. And, and, you know, and as you know, this, this discussion of why does Joseph Smith not have any children by the plural lives? Great question. Excellent question. I don't know anyone that's got a good answer to that, but going from there to there's no children, that means he absolutely had no involvement to polygamy. Bit of a stretch. But this is, this is, uh, I want to go from here to a larger point. What was the source for Brigham Young had 56 children? Of course, the eminent historian, John J. Stewart, who writes this, this little book, Brigham Young and His Wives. So for Brigham Young, that's acceptable as evidence. And in other places, they'll quote from the Utah Genealogical and Historical Magazine. They'll quote DUP publications. And so for anyone whose name is not Joseph Smith, these sources are legitimate and we can use those. For Joseph Smith, no. Affidavits from Joseph Smith's own wives, no, not acceptable. Anyone else, absolutely. So yeah, how they're using sources is is very problematic, and that pops up over and over. Um, another point that I thought was interesting, they start quoting some Smith family members on this. So first we go to Joseph Smith III, quote, to assert that Joseph Smith was afraid to promulgate that doctrine if the command to do so had come from God, is to charge him with a moral cowardice to which his whole life gives the lie. Next up, Brother Alexander. Um, he, he starts by discussing the statement on marriage from the 1835 DNC and then says, quote, but says one, that was only a sham to blind the eyes of our enemies. Shame on the man or set of men who will thus willfully charge the two best men of the 19th century, the two prophets of the Most High God, with publishing to the church and the public at large a lie and signing their names to it. Then the best one where they really throw down the gauntlet, they quote um, Albert Smith, who was, uh, this would have been like what, 40s or 50s, the presiding patriarch and son of David Hiram Smith. Quote, there is no halfway ground. Either Joseph Smith was true and clean, open and above board as the organized church claims, or else he was a hypocrite and a fraud through and through, as his enemies claim. The Utah Mormons cannot long continue seriously to contend that he was a real prophet of God and a good man, yet blowing hot in private and cold in public, a monogamist in the pulpit and press, and a polygamist in his home. That's so a bold this, claim. That's a bold claim. Uh, not surprisingly, the prices were big fans of that one. I mean, this is, yeah, there's, we're not messing around. It's, this is an either-or discussion. But another problem here with how they approach things is they just, they're either unable, unwilling, they cannot acknowledge a difference between public statements and private behavior. There's, there's, there can be no distinction between the two there. And as we all know, if you take only public Joseph Smith statements, yeah, you can go down this road very easily and, uh, and that's all well and good, but you cannot detach those public statements from private behavior. Can't do it. That, that's not how it works. So yes, I'm putting on my key, my, my key point hat here. To understand the prices, you've got to remember always the position is not Joseph Smith was not a polygamist. It's that Joseph Smith could not have been a polygamist. And there's a, there's a big distinction there because with was not, you can, you can reason and you can deal with it on, on evidence terms. But when you're saying he could not have been a polygamist, whatever evidence you throw at that is totally irrelevant because, go back to the beginning, you may have forgotten he couldn't have been a polygamist. Their worldview just simply does not allow for that. So that's, that's 
very important. Worldview is is everything here. Any thoughts before a couple last things? I'm gonna. I want to jump in on uh, Jacob Cochran because this is exactly what I was talking about earlier. I mean, I until you mentioned him, like I had completely forgotten about the Cochranites. I work in Mormon studies for a living, man. I, I spend all day long reading about Mormonism and Mormon documents. But this again, this is the calling card. This is the hallmark of the conspiracy theorists, where they bring up someone or something. You, you've never even heard of you're not and, and import enormous significance to it. That's very, very common. It's, it's like umbrella man, you know, in the JFK assassination. I mean, yeah. there's always yeah. these little things that, that they can really latch onto. I mean, the, the Cochranites are not <laughs> a significant part of Mormon history, but imagine now, imagine you're someone who's, who's been LDS mainstream LDS your whole life. You know, you, you didn't know that Joseph Smith was a polygamist or you only had this vague inkling of it and you didn't understand the details and then you read something or you hear something and it's really upsetting. You know, it's, it's really getting to you and it's going to be, again, causing some kind of, of faith crisis. Imagine how appealing, you know, the price's work then becomes when you open it up and you're like, oh, this is where that came from, that this came from the, these people. And, you know, and again, all of a sudden you feel, you feel pretty smart. You feel pretty well-informed people in your ward don't know who Jacob Cochran is. You know, the, the, these other people have never heard of this, but you know, and now you, you get a sound intelligent. You get a sound like, you know, what's going on here and how this happened. It's, it's very appealing and it's something that we can all, you know, fall for. And so I think that, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that, again, that is just, you know, it, it's conspiracy theory 101 that, yes. that we bring up and throw in these names that nobody knows about and, and is not significant, but we give it significance. I always pull the Cochrane card. Yeah, that's, man, holy crap. You want to hear about Cochranites? <laughs> volume one, you will learn a lot. And it's fascinating. I, I, you know, had known of them. I remember um, George brought them up briefly in Nauvoo polygamy and, you know, they, they get kicked around every now and again, but it was, you know, it was interesting and clearly they've done a lot of research into it, but yeah, it's this, well, what about the Cochranites? It's this, this, what about ism where you, you throw in that idea and yeah, you just blindside somebody who's not as familiar with Jacob Cochran or his group as you have become. So, and I just want to say this, um, I have heard this same tactic used by fellow ex Mormons, right. Who are like to throw in stuff to, you know, show that the church isn't true. So just to be clear, like this is a rhetoric style that a lot of people use. I've probably been guilty of it myself. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, you know, if, if at any point, any listener of whatever, stripe and flavor is starting to get a little high and mighty thinking, oh, silly prices, you know, tricks are for kids here. You can't be, you can't be doing this. Remember, we all do this. We just do it with, with different things. You know, if, if it's, a, if it's a, uh, an active LDS listener, you have to remember that that priesthood and temple ban, that LDS leaders and, and their history painted itself into a corner over decades by, by doubling down on things, book of Abraham, it's, you know, once you've painted yourself into a corner by fighting history for a long time, it becomes so much harder to 
if at some point you decide I don't want to be in this corner anymore, uh, you've made it much, much harder to get out of there. And, you know, you get to a point where this worldview gets you to say nonsense like the following. This was great. This is an email from Pamela Price about the Clayton Diaries and the 1843 revelation that later becomes 132. Quote, you are correct about the two documents being forgeries. They are but two of many which were forged in order to make Joseph the author of section 132. So if you if you fight history, you get to a point where you start having to do some really wild gyrations to get things to work. And, uh, and, and yeah, again, we're not being high and mighty here because we all do it. We just do, we just choose it with different things. So, and that's, that's one thing about, you know, what, what you find with most, not all, but most people who promulgate, you know, some of these theories, it's very easy to be skeptical. I mean, anybody can say anything, right? It's very easy to say, this is a forgery. It's very easy to to say this didn't happen or, or whatever. And, and again, like John talked about earlier, to isolate these documents and to focus on those. It's much harder to tell a cohesive narrative that's that's an alternative to the, to, you know, the, the version that makes the most sense. In this case, Joseph Smith was a polygamist. And so most people don't bother to do that. If you push people on that, you'll, you'll find they really don't have much of an answer. There are extreme cases where they will have concocted a very elaborate, you know, um, way of looking at this and saying, well, no, this is what happened. Um, but most people won't. And if you, you say, well, what that, therefore what, you know, what, is, what does this mean that if these documents for forged, what, what are you saying? I mean, you're, you're suddenly involving a lot of people in this. What's, you know, where does this go? And most people aren't, aren't usually able to answer that. Or if they have an idea in their head, they won't say it because they know how ridiculous it sounds. Yeah. Well, I'm going to wrap this up. I just, I'll bring up two points, which we've already talked about, but I'll, I'll be pretty concise. So the two issues that I have have to do with just just the theories and what we're trying to say when we when we argue these things. And one of them, Brian Buchanan, you already brought up, which is how we use sources. This is something that really drives me batty in Mormon studies in general, depending on what we are trying to argue and what I call faith politics, the faith politics behind the argument. We sometimes become inconsistent with how we use sources. So, for example... Uh, let's take Joseph Smith's first vision. How how long do we know um, until the first vision was actually written down? Anyone out there? 12 years. 12 years. Okay. 12 years. Now, uh, we take that, most Mormons take that as a foundational claim of, truth claim of the divinity of the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith and the Mormon church. And yet 12 years, it took 12 years for him to write that down. Now, if we're going to say that's okay, 12 years, here's why, here's why we have different versions, here's why it comes out so many years later, they don't know about it until 1842, fine, I'm fine with that, except for we don't use that argument across the board. So if we were to apply that argument to Joseph Smith's wives and say, oh, well, the affidavits were written so many years after Joseph Smith died, do we get to do that? Do we get to say, well, we're going to apply you know, this contemporary argument here, but not here when it when it doesn't suit our purposes. And I see that in Mormon studies all the time. Um, we talk about first-hand accounts, second-hand accounts, third-hand accounts. And I have seen good historians privilege 
third-hand accounts as truth where they will dismiss first-hand accounts of women and their affidavits later on. And that sort of inconsistency really bothers me because I think, you know, if that's going to be your argument to give this this historical argument some weight, then it should be consistent across the board. Am I wrong? Am I off there? Nope. <laughs> okay. No, you're, you're think, exactly right. Yeah, I, and and Hatch pointed this out earlier. You know, it for someone who's struggling with with let's say polygamy here, it's very helpful to for this Joseph Smith fought polygamy idea, for example, because it allows you to maintain Joseph Smith how you want him. And and you know we can we can discard the the polygamy stuff, and in doing that, you know how you get to that point may not be terribly clean or neat. It's the the key point is preserving Joseph Smith to you, and so you know in the in the meantime things get lost, things get bungled, and the key point though is you've maintained Joseph Smith how you want. Yeah, and I think the uncomfortable truth that I've had to confront because I work so closely with different fundamentalist groups is uh, there are comparisons to the early church to fundamentalist movements, and that makes everyone uncomfortable. It makes Mormon historians uncomfortable, and I call it Mormon Godwin's Law when I bring up Warren Jeffs um, and compare him to Joseph Smith because— you know, sometimes it's low-hanging fruit for ex-Mormons to, you know, compare Joseph and Warren Jeffs. But a comparison that I think that uh, is kind of striking for me and that gives me pause when I look at how I look at my own Mormon history is to hear the narratives that the FLDS will tell about Warren Jeffs now. I mean, they will adopt some of the same narratives that we have with Joseph Smith about him being persecuted and him being in prison. And there's even a story about Warren Jeffs being fed human flesh in jail and resisting the temptation, just like we hear with Joseph Smith. And so I see that, I get to see that. I have the benefit of seeing um, the way that we sort of talk about living people, living leaders, and um, it helps me have insight in how we could have, you know, do that with our own leaders and things like that. But it's also an uncomfortable comparison. So, that's my first um, gripe. And the second one we've already talked about a few times, but it's just the the horrible double standard in how we will privilege Joseph Smith's narrative over the narrative of many women, not just one or two, but many. And if you look at what's going on in, it's 2017 right now, we have this Harvey Weinstein case. We have multiple women coming forward saying he was uh, coercive and abusive and harassed them. And it's, and in some cases assaulted him and we have many, many women. It would be one thing if one woman came forward um, and said this. You know, I think a lot of people would believe that one woman, but there would be doubters. But there are so many. And we have that same thing with Joseph Smith. And when when we have arguments that say, well, Joseph Smith didn't, you know, marry them or he wasn't sealed to them, it completely diminishes these women's entire life stories. And I'm not just talking about like the affidavits where they, they do admit, you know, some decades later that they were plural wives to Joseph Smith. I mean, their entire life story, you have to know in detail about their lives and where they even settled in Utah and who they lived with and who they talked to and who they interacted with and their letters that they wrote to Brigham Young constantly. We're not talking about just, you know, um, some woman recalling it later and claiming that she was married to Joseph Smith. They, pattern their entire lives. Many of these women pattern their entire lives based on this fact. And so to, because we need Joseph Smith to be a monogamous for whatever reason, and I say this again, this is where I get fired up. 
our desire to keep Joseph Smith as a monogamous, I think, says way more about our understanding about sexuality than it does about Joseph Smith, because it's us trying to apply whatever moral standard that we have onto him. And it's not a moral standard that's accurate. So to preserve his legacy, we throw these women under the bus over and over and over again um, because we need Joseph Smith to look squeaky clean in our minds. And again, like, what does that, what does that infer about these women, about their ability to lie? Why would, why would a woman lie about this? And I've, and I've read the the theories, you know, they, Brigham Young asked them to do it, or maybe they um, wanted status or prominence. And would we apply those same arguments to women that you know, in the press today with Harvey Weinstein. And I'm not saying that Weinstein and Joseph Smith are the same, just to be clear. But I I do think that we have, it's not like we have one woman that wrote it down somewhere in a diary. We have many women, many women. And we have many, many people who were witnesses to that. And again, if like John Hatch said, if this were, you know, some big cover up, it was every single person except for Joseph Smith that was involved. And then what does that mean for Mormonism? It means Mormonism is completely corrupt because they're the people who took Mormonism on and preserve these documents. So that's my final little rant. Do you guys have anything to say about that? Yeah. I mean, I think, and, and I, pre, you know, obviously again, reiterating, we're not saying Joseph Smith is Harvey Weinstein, but I think there's, some instructive parallels. Um, and, and one of them, I, I read an article about this, that, that we have this history of distrusting women. And it, it, a similar thing here is all it's going to take for people to disbelieve is one false accusation. You know, one, one person coming forward, one, and, and it all comes crumbling down, right? And I think there's something there with this where, you know, history is messy, and this isn't perfect. And, and I mean, if we, if, if, if your listeners pay attention to John going through um, these sources, he's very cautious. He uses a lot of, you know, cautious language to make sure that we understand he's not making absolute statements. He's not making declarative statements. That's, that's what history is. Um, none of this is perfect. We may find out someday that, that there's one wife that we've assumed is a wife of Joseph Smith and, may, and maybe she wasn't, I don't think that's likely, but it could happen. That, that doesn't, you know, disavow everything else. Um, it doesn't mean that, that this didn't happen, but I think we do have this bizarre history of not trusting women and all, you know, we, we build these fragile understandings and, and these fragile truths and all it takes is one or two things to, to have it come tumbling down. And I think, I think it's important that we listen to all the stories and again, tie them together. And, and you're exactly right. It, it, it's an important point. This is their whole life. This wasn't, you know, this isn't a woman who happened to get caught by a reporter and like, Oh, tell me about your time with, with Joseph Smith back in the day. Oh yeah, that was it. That was fun. No, it was, I mean, it was like this whole existence that these women carved out for themselves, often very lonely existences, by the way. If you look at how these women lived away from their husbands, how poor some of them were, some of Brigham Young's wives begging them to send, begging him to send them money or food. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a very hard existence and it was their whole life. And I think 
people may not mean to be disrespectful when they go down these conspiratorial paths, but they are. I mean, it, you, you are dismissing someone else's entire life. And I, I hope that gives people pause. You know, to use an emotional argument, because we were just talking about how facts don't matter. Here's an emotional argument that I think makes sense to me. I want everyone listening, male or female, and everyone in between to picture in this society, in this very liberal, sexually liberated society, that you were going to engage in polygamy right now. And what would you do to engage in polygamy? Would you be open about it? Would you go and post it on Facebook? Would you hide it? Would you hide it from people from work? Would you, you know, in with your polygamous spouse, would you be writing them? Would you be deleting your texts? And I think that that's important to remember too. Um, we think we would act different in some ways than than uh, people would back then. But again, we're not going to have a sex tape. We're not going to have sex between Joseph Smith and these wives. It's not going to exist. And that's not the kind of proof that we're looking for in history because that kind of proof didn't exist then. And those are the ways I think that we should be thinking towards um, complicated questions when we're talking about this stuff. We shouldn't we shouldn't be basing it off of just sort of black and white questions and black and white answers because I think first of all relationships in general are really messy, and human beings are really messy, and history is very messy, especially what what is left behind. And and I just want to personally apologize to people that I've gotten mad at on the internet <laughs> over these discussions. So I'm going to work on that. Uh, any last words from anyone? We've went really, really long and it's late. Only to say thank you for letting me participate. This was, uh, was truly an honor. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you for <laughs> that amazing list of sources. So thank you, uh, Brian and John and John. And can people ask questions? Can they argue in the comments? Give, maybe give us some things to consider we hadn't considered before. You guys okay with that? What about um, Jacob Cochran's brother? <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Okay, well, thanks everyone for listening and have a good night. Well, I've sinned so bravely, brother Brigham, brother Young. I've sinned so bravely, brother Young. That only you can save me, brother Brigham, brother Young. That only you can save me, brother Young. My only hope for exaltation, brother Brigham, brother Young. My only chance for exaltation, brother Young. Send me over the rim of the basin, brother Brigham, brother Young. The rim of the Salt Lake Basin, brother Young. For water cannot save me, brother Brigham, brother Young. Baptismal water cannot save me, Brigham Young. My sins are just too deep to die, oh brother Brigham, brother Young. My sins are just too deep to die, oh brother Young. So send avenging angels, brother Brigham, brother Young. Won't you send destroying day nights, brother Young? Spill my blood upon the earth, oh brother Brigham, brother Young. I beg you, spill my blood, oh brother Young. And let it smoke ascend to heaven, brother Brigham, brother Young.
suffering from our sins A smoking incense, brother young A blood atoning from our sinning, brother young Cause our sin's so great 